Well, good morning, church. Grab a Bible, turn to Ephesians 4. If you're a guest, my name is Scott Luck. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. We're really glad that you're here and uh, we want to welcome you. We'd love to connect with you uh, at the info counter after the service or out in the foyer. So uh, join us uh, right after the service out there. We are uh, in a series called uh, Be the Church and uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And it's just amazing to think about that uh, God has revealed himself to us, that God has spoken, that God is um, about disclosing and revealing himself. And we are the beneficiaries of that. We get to benefit uh, from the revelation of himself. And so because of that, we approach God's word with reverence. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of the word of God today? We're going to read Ephesians 1 through 16. So Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord and one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? That he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the shepherds, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It stands forever. You may be seated. Well, like I mentioned, we're, we're in a series of messages that we've been calling Be the Church. And, you know, my angle for this has been really simple. I want to challenge you to take a step in your discipleship. I want to challenge you to see yourself as disciples of Jesus. And I'm calling you to follow him. And so that's, that's what this entire series is about. And that may mean take a step to get baptized. It may mean take a step to join a D group. It may be that you need to join, you know, Financial Peace University, a class that we're going to be offering. Whatever it is, I'm going to challenge you to take a step and really begin your discipleship journey if you've, if you've not started it. Now, what's interesting about all of this is this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Now, you know, last couple of weeks, I, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and, and really much like the Ephesian letter that he wrote, you know, in Corinthians, he challenged them to grow up in their faith and to mature. 
And that's exactly what he's doing in Ephesians. Now, what's fascinating is we don't really know the occasion for why he wrote this letter. We don't know what was behind it, what motivated it, but we do know what the letter says. And the big, the big point of the letter is that he's challenging them to grow, to take a step in their discipleship, just like I'm challenging you. And so that's what this is all about. He talks to them, I want you to grow to maturity. I, I, want, I don't want you to remain as children, you know, that are being blown about by every wind that just starts blowing. But I want you to be strong. I want you to be mature. I want you to grow up in your faith. And that's what he says in this passage. Now, it's fascinating because as you kind of think about that, that call to grow up and mature resonates with every single one of us who are parents or grandparents, does it not? I mean, because what do you want for your kids? You want them to grow up, right? You want them to mature. You, you, want, them to, you, you want them to develop, fully develop. And that's really the occupation of parenting, right? The purpose of parenting is for you to equip your kids with the skills, you know, the, you know, the tools, everything they need to be independent to be productive members of society, to be godly members of society. And here's the thing. I mean, if your kids are still living with you and they're, they're 20 years old, they're 30 years old, they're 40 years old, and you're still parenting church, you got a problem. Houston, we have a problem here. Amen. Because that's, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that resonated very strongly over here. So, <laughs> so that's the purpose of parenting right? To grow them up. And so what do you do as a parent? You pray, you work, you discipline, you, you do blood, sweat, and tears, everything you need to give your kids everything they need to fly and to soar and to be godly men and women. And that's what parenting is all about. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. You know, as sons and daughters of God, your heavenly father wants you to grow up to maturity. That's what he's saying here. It's so simple. Take a step and grow. Take a step and follow Jesus. And you'll be surprised at what you find. Now, as I mentioned, you know, we don't know the occasion why he wrote this letter, but we do know this. We know what the letter is about. And what he does in Ephesians is he writes about the, the mystery of our salvation. He, he not only writes about the mystery of our salvation, but he writes about the unity of the church. And then he talks about the maturity of a believer. So he's talking about the mystery and the unity and the maturity. And what he does is he answers this question. How does, how does the church grow in unity? And how does a believer grow to maturity? He answers that question. And I wanna look at that today because I think the answer that he gives to us is going to surprise us. And so here's what I wanna do this morning. I want you to keep your Bible open. I want you to track along with us. I want you to take notes. What I'm gonna do is I was kind of thinking about how to present this to you today. You know, there are a lot of different options of way I can serve this thing up. The best thing we can do is just walk through the verse that we just read, the passages verse by verse. And let me just explain it. And then what I wanna do at the end is just make three observations. Are you guys ready? All right, fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. Let's start at verse one. We're just gonna work our way through this. So Paul writes, I therefore, all right, now we need to stop right there. I therefore, anytime you've heard me say this, but anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to go and read what's before. So what you could do is you could circle that word therefore in your Bible and, and, and draw an arrow pointing to the left because that's a reminder to you, I need to go back and read what's before this. And so what he's saying is what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say in chapter four is built on, it's the next logical step based on my argument in chapters one, two, and three. And what he's gonna say in chapter four is you need to be an active participant in the church. That's what he's gonna say. That in light of 
what God has done in your salvation, in giving you grace, in revealing himself to you, in light of the salvation that God has brought to you, the next logical step is you need to be active in the body life of his church. That's what he's saying. So in other words, you could frame it this way. Can you be a growing Christian, a growing disciple of Jesus and not be active in a church? That's really the question. Can you grow as a Christian by yourself? What we see from scripture repeatedly over and over again, the answer to that question is no, you cannot. And that's what he's talking about. All right, so I therefore, look at, let's continue on. A prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. All right, let's stop right there. Let's just look at that for a minute. What does it mean to walk? He's challenging them to walk, to take a step, right? That's what walk means. It literally means I'm gonna take certain steps to get from one place to the next. What he is doing in this, in this letter is he's challenging the Christians at Ephesus. I just want you to take a step. I want you to walk. I want you to walk following Jesus. And I want you to walk in a certain way. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Now, what I love about that is he explained the calling that they received in the preceding chapters. So in light of the extravagant grace that God has given, in light of the amazing grace that we've sung about, in light of the reckless grace that we've experienced, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And so what that means is we walk to God's glory, right? We walk to to honor him, to, to display his greatness. That's why we walk. So we live and we walk in this manner worthy of the calling to which we receive. So he gets really practical in verse two and he starts explaining what this looks like, what it means to walk in this manner. Look at what he says, verse two, walk with all humility. So what does humility mean? Humility means that you recognize that God is God and you're not. So you don't need to try to be. God is God and you're not, so you don't need to try to be God. In other words, it's not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your family's not about you. Your job's not about you. It's about Jesus. Your entire life is about Jesus. That's humility. When you come to recognize that, that's called humility. Another way of saying it would be like this. You know, as I was kind of thinking about this, I am, I am so small in the eternal scheme of things. You know, when you kind of consider the universe and you know, all of the galaxies, when you consider how huge the creation is, I am so small compared to that. I am a pimple on a flea. That's how big I am. That's it right there. But you know what the truth is? That I'm loved in a big way by God. I mean, I'm that small, but God's love for me is that big. That's pretty incredible. That's humility when you live with that mindset. That's the truth of who we are. And that fosters unity. That means I don't look down on anyone else. You know why? Because they're loved by God too. So walk in a manner worthy, walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. What's he talking about there? He's really talking about, you know, with with the patience, the gentleness, the love that God has poured into our life, we need to display that to everybody else. 
So in our marriage, in our family, we need to be gentle. We need to be patient. We need to bear with one another. We're not always easy to live with. We're not always easy to love, but he calls us to love anyway. You know why? Because God loved us in that way. And he explains that in chapter two, because we were enemies with God. We were aligned with the, with the prince of this world. And yet God loved us anyway. That's pretty incredible. So then he goes on to say this, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Now look at this. this is, there's, there's a couple of things I want you to see in this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now there, here's, here's where really what I want you to see. As I was looking at this passage, what jumped off to me is the connection between walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and my relationships. Because when, he, when he's talking about when he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, he, he tells us humility, gentleness, patience, love, and maintaining unity. All of those things talk about how I relate to other people. So in other words, what he's saying is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is a walk in community with other believers. That's what he's saying. He assumes that. He's not saying you know, I really want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord as you live a Lone Ranger Christian life. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I want you to live a life worthy of the Lord as you, as you pull away from the church. He's not saying that. Do you know why he's not saying it? Because the only way to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is by walking in community. That's the only way to do it. That's the only option you got. Because you cannot be a growing Christian and be outside of the Christian community. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. But another thing I want you to, let me look at this verse again. Look at verse three, eager to maintain the unity. Now, it's fascinating here because he says to maintain it. He doesn't say anything about producing unity. Now, why is that? Because we can't produce unity. We can't manufacture unity. In the church, you know, like on staff meeting, we have staff meeting on Tuesday. We'll never sit around the table and say, you know what? How can we create some unity in our church? Because we can't do that. We don't have the power to do that. All we can do and all he says to do is for us to maintain the unity, but we can't create it. Now, the question is this, what is it that creates unity in the church? The gospel of Jesus Christ creates unity. Grace creates unity. That's, that's where unity comes from. It comes from grace. Now, let me, let me just kind of drill down on this a little bit. And you've, you guys have heard me talk about this in the past, but I wanna, I wanna take it a step further today. I don't think, this is just my opinion. You can disagree with me and I'll still love you, but, um, but, but this is just my opinion. I, just, I, I'm, I don't think that our country has ever been more divided than it is today. Even back in the Civil War days, I don't even think, you know, um, I, I don't even think that beats where we are today. We are very divided. I think we're aware of that. We watch the news. We live, we live you know, in, in this country and we understand that. And it's ironic to me that we are so disunited because there's so much talk and emphasis on tolerance and multiculturalism and pluralism and diversity. Is, is there not? There's so much emphasis on that. 
And it's fascinating to me. You would think that with all of that emphasis on those things, that we would be so united as a country, but it's actually working against us. Do you know why? Because as we talk about tolerance and diversity, what we're doing is we're focusing the country on all of our differences, all of the different groups within the United States. And that's creating friction. What we need to do is turn towards what is it as Americans that we have in common? What is our common values? What are our common values as Americans? We need to focus on what we have in common because it's what we have in common that brings unity. Does that make sense? And so that's where my concern for the future of our country is we seem to have less agreement over what those common values are. And a marriage can't survive that. A family can't survive that. And guess what? A country, a nation can't survive without common values. Does that make sense? Now let's think about the church. You know, all over the world today, Christians are gathering to worship uh, different cultures, different races, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic levels, different education levels, different customs for worship. But believers all over the world are worshiping. What is the one thing the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world has in common? What's the one thing? We're sinners saved by grace. Isn't that fascinating? Like the one thing that we have in common is we've been forgiven by God. We have the grace of God. And that one thing, you have that one thing in common, you have everything in common. Because nothing else matters on that level. Isn't that interesting? And so we can send, we can send 20 people to, to Haiti. We can send 30 people down to El Salvador. And, and, and our folks worship in complete unity in the churches down there. Do you know why? Because the only thing that matters is the grace of God. Not our race, racial differences, not our education differences. You know, not anything except what we have in common, the grace of God. And so all that was free, by the way. Uh, so, but I think that's kind of, what's happening here. Our unity really comes from the gospel. He explains this unity in verse four. Let me, let me show you what he says about this. So notice how he drills down on the unity. Verse four, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You know what that means? He's talking about the unity of our salvation. Now I could do a whole sermon series on the ones in this passage. I really could do. Now I will spare that because you want to watch the Super Bowl today, but let me just, let me just, can I highlight just one of the ones? All right. Notice what he says, verse four, there is one body. When he's talking about the unity of the church, he compares it to the unity that we have in our physical body. He's using a metaphor and he's describing the church and the unity of the church and he's comparing it to the unity that we have in our physical bodies. You know, when you woke up this morning, you didn't have to screw your head on. Now, maybe you felt like it, okay? Maybe you felt like somebody did and they didn't get it right, you know? But you didn't have to. You didn't have to attach your, your arms and your, your wrists and your tongue. You didn't have to do that. Why? Because you're one unified body. And he's making a comparison the same way with us. That our unity comes from the gospel. We are one unified body, even though we are 
millions and billions of different pieces and parts. Does that make sense? So the way that we maintain unity is by walking in the grace of God. That's how we maintain unity. When we stop walking in the grace of the gospel, we have lost our unity. And so that's why the gospel creates unity because it it helps us to walk in his grace. So, So let's say that somebody hurts you in the church, somebody, you know, somebody wrongs you and you choose to hold a grudge. You choose not to forgive. You've created disunity in the body of Christ. You know why? Because you've stopped walking in the grace of the gospel. You've forgotten that God in Christ has forgiven you. So that grace is used to forgive the ones who've wronged us. Does that make sense? Can I get an amen to that? There you go. So another way of saying it would be that, you know, if we ever lose the gospel, we'll lose unity. If we've lost unity, it's because we've lost the gospel. That's what he's talking about right there. All right, look at verse seven. All right, so look at this. Verse seven, but. Now I want you to, when you're reading scripture, I want you to always notice the buts of scripture. They're really important, okay? The buts of scripture. You can laugh at that. That's kind of a play on words there. Um, But yeah, but. That's, that word but signals a change. There's a change here. There's a red flag waving. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now notice this. He, he's talking about, he's been talking about the group of the church, the corporate nature of the church. Now verse seven, he transitions with talking about each one of us. Now what I'd like about that is, God knows every one of us. He sees every one of us. Every one of us, you know, we're all valuable in God's eyes. That individuals are not lost in the corporate nature of the church. God sees and knows everyone. And he's given something to each one of us. Well, what did he give to us? What does it say? Grace. And he gives this grace, you know, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now I'm gonna talk about the measure of Christ's gift. I think you know what that is. But he's, but he's given us Christ's gift, but then he's given us grace on top of that. What is that grace? Well, it's a gift. It's a specific gift. Let's look at it. Look at what he says in verse eight. What he's gonna do is he's going to use a Psalm to support what he's saying. He's quoting Psalm 68. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. So the grace that he gave on top of Christ's gift is a gift to all of you. He's given you a gift. And so he's using this Psalm 68 and he's talking about when he ascended on high, you know that Jesus lived and then he died and then he rose and then he ascended into heaven. And in in the passage in the Psalms talks about he led a host of captives. In the original language, led a host of captives, it literally means he took captivity captive. We are in in captivity to, to sin and death. Jesus in his resurrection and ascension took captive captivity. He defeated it once and for all. I don't know, that's pretty cool right there. That's pretty awesome. And then he gave gifts to men. Now, um, 
We'll get to that in just a moment. Look at verse nine. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? What he's talking about there is he's not talking about his descension into hell. He's talking about Jesus leaving the throne of heaven and incarnating the earth. So he descended first and then he ascended. And the reason why he is saying this, and he kind of alludes to this, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Basically what he's saying is this, that Jesus is Lord over all. And because he's Lord of all, he's the one that gives the gifts out and he gives them out as he pleases. Because he's Lord of all. I mean, he descended and he ascended. And he brought salvation. And because he's Lord of all, then he gets to determine what gift we get and how many of those gifts. And that's, that's exactly what he is alluding to here. And so he, he's making that case. Now, now we're getting what I really wanna preach about. I haven't even started preaching yet. Isn't that amazing? Uh, you're like, what have we been doing the last 20 minutes? All right, look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles. So now he starts talking about the gifts that he gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So he's just giving a sample of church leaders. And what he's saying is pastors and evangelists and prophets and the apostles, they are all gifts to you. Your church leaders, the, 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 the men and women that lead the church that you're a part of are God's gift to you. Isn't that amazing? That doesn't mean you have to like us. It just means you have to love us, right? That's that's what that means. So we're really God's gift to you. Now, the question is this, why did he give those gifts to the church? Well, he answers it. Look at verse 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, did you catch that? The reason why God has given us leaders in the church is so that the saints can be equipped for the work of the ministry. In other words, church, you are to do the work of the ministry. My job as pastor is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's all of our elders, all of our staff. Our job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. You're like, Hold the phone, call time out. I thought we were paying you guys a salary so that we could be the beneficiaries. We could be the recipients of the ministry. No, that's not biblical. You see what it said in verse 12? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You're supposed to be doing it. That's what he's saying. This is where consumerism in America is killing the church. Because we approach church like going to the mall. And we come to church, we say, well, you know, I paid my tithe, I made my contribution. I expect religious goods and services in return. I expect that. I want a good message. I want it to be uplifting, not too convicting. I want good music, you know. Um, And I want the needs of my family taken care of. And if they're not, we're going to take our business elsewhere. That may be the American church, but it's not the biblical church. Because my job, our job as a staff team, we're really the administers, you're all the ministers. Somebody asked me, how many ministers do you have over there? I got about a thousand, I'll say. Like, man, y'all got a big church. Yeah, we do. According to Ephesians 4.12, we got a big church. 
And so that's our job. We are, we are absolutely to equip you in, in the work of the ministry. That's what the apostle Paul is saying about participation in the body of Christ as a result of the salvation that we've received. And so let's just continue on. Notice what he says. Now we're getting into the impact of your serving, you doing the ministering. Here's what it produces. It produces a certain set of things and he describes them in detail for the building up of the body of Christ. So when you serve, you use your gift, you identify your gift, you develop your gift and you deploy your gift in the body of Christ. It builds up the church, it strengthens the church and we all benefit. And then he says this, until we all attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So when you exercise and do your gift, when you minister in the body of Christ, it produces, it, it strengthens and maintains our unity. And it also develops our knowledge of the Son of God. So as a result of your service, I come to know Jesus better because of your gift that you're using, because of the grace working through you in the gift. And then he goes on to say this, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would no longer be children. So what it does is when you use your gift, it, it actually brings us to a place of maturity and development in the body of Christ that we're no longer children who are being blown about by every wind that you know, comes down the pipeline. So that's how important your service is. That's the impact of your service on the body of Christ here and even, even throughout the church. So, so it, makes, it makes the church grow and develop. It matures us. And as I was trying to figure out an easy way of saying it, I, I think the principle kind of boiled down is it could be, could be put this way. Your ministry facilitates maturity in the church. Your ministry facilitates maturity in the church. And likewise, your lack of ministry facilitates immaturity in the church. That's what he's saying. That's profound. So you, you can no longer just kind of sit back in your chair and say, well, you know, we really like going to stones, but we're not serving. That has a negative impact on the body. It, it fosters immaturity here so that immaturity can take root and develop. You know, uh, Luanna and I are parents of two boys and could you imagine, they're, they're 15 and 17, can you imagine when they're one years old? You know, we've spent our life serving them. We, we love them and we serve them and provide a house for them and uh, guidance and care and nurture and all that stuff. And it's hard work. Those of you who are parents, grandparents, you know how hard work it is. Can you imagine if when our kids were age one, we just, Luanna and I just said, you know what? We're not serving our kids anymore. It's just too hard. I just don't want to do it. I'd rather sit and watch. Do you know what they would do? They'd come take our kids away from us. And rightly so. What would hurt them more than that? Nothing. You know what hurts the church? When you say, I'm not using my gift to bless the church. I'd rather just sit and soak. And that's just not an option that's been left for us. So the point of this is this, you need to be serving. You need to be serving in the body of Christ. Can I give you three reasons why? 
Number one, I am saved to serve. That is the first reason why you need to be serving in the church. You've been saved to serve. Look with me, just skip over two chapters. Go back to chapter two of Ephesians verses eight, nine, and 10. Let me show you this right from scripture. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, we are his poem. That literally means poem. God wrote a poem and he put your name on it and you are it. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, say it with me, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what is he saying? He's saying we're not saved by our works, we're saved for works. And here's the amazing thing. There's so much mystery involved around what I'm about to say. I mean, I can't even explain. I can barely understand it myself. But here you go. That God, God before the world was even created, before you were even born, knew the gifts that he would give you. And he knew the service that he designed for you to bless the body of Christ with. Before this whole thing started, he knew that about you. That's what he's saying. So you have a role to play. You have a ministry to fulfill. You have a service to give to others. And when you give that service, not only does the body of Christ grow, but you grow as well. You grow. And so I've been saved to serve. But secondly, I've been gifted to serve. I've been gifted to serve. This is the second reason why you need to be serving. I'm gifted to serve. Go back to Ephesians 4. Let me show you again, verse 7, just in case... You missed it, but grace was given to each one of us. And then he goes down and he gave gifts to men and women. So that grace that he gave is, comes to us in the form of a spiritual gift. It's a grace gift. And what a spiritual gift is, it says that manifestation of Jesus in our lives. That's what a spiritual gift is. And all I know is I benefit, I grow from you using your gift, whatever that gift is. I benefit from it. The other, you know, everybody else in church benefits from it. So let me, let me just say, if you've walked through a very difficult season in your life, whether it's, you know, you know infertility or miscarriage, and you know how hard that is, you've walked through that and, and God has helped you and he's given you grace. And when you share that experience with someone else who's going through it, they come to know the grace of God because of your ministry in sharing that. Does that make sense? And they grow from that. And so if you have the teaching gift, let's say you have a, an ability to teach um, and you have the ability to explain complex truths and make them very simple. And when you teach the word of God, what it does is it goes out and it blesses everyone who hears. Why? Because the anointing of God is on you. And it encourages everybody that hears it. And they grow in their knowledge of God. They grow in their experience of grace and they are transformed by that. All because you use that teaching gift. If you have the gift of serving and you use the gift of service to cook and you make banana bread and you share it with me, I benefit from that. It is an amazing, uh, amazing thing there. Uh, but I think you get where I'm going with all of that. So, so when you exercise the gift, the body is blessed by that. When you withhold it, the body's weakened by that. And so 
1 Corinthians tells us that the spiritual gift is a manifestation of Christ. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's taking something invisible and making it visible. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a, man, a revealing of Christ. So this is kind of a crude illustration, but let me just use it anyway. Let's say that you were mad at me. You were angry at me, okay? And I didn't know you were angry. Like you just kind of had it in your heart and I didn't know. And then we're out in the foyer, you know, during the fellowship time and you come up and punch me right in the mouth. At that point, I would probably know you were mad at me. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because you took what was invisible and you made it visible. Spiritual gifts are the same way. It is the Spirit's anointing on you so that Christ is revealed in a very practical way. He's seen in a very practical way. Now you're like, well, what's the difference between a natural ability and a spiritual gift? That's a great question. Here's the thing. You're born, you know, natural abilities come when you're born. Spiritual gifts come when you're born again. They are gifts of the Spirit. And the purpose of the spiritual gifts is to bless and build up the body of Christ. Natural talents don't necessarily do that. But that's what a spiritual gift is. And so here's the question. Do you know your spiritual gift? Because you should know it. And not only should you know it, you should be using it. You really should. Because you're God's workmanship. You've been redeemed for this. You've been, you've been saved to serve. You've been gifted to serve. You should be using whatever gift you have been given. That's, that's really the bottom line. You're like, well, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? I think you need to just start serving and figure it out. Part of it is trial and error. You know, you serve and you know, you serve in student ministry or children's ministry and you kind of figure out, okay, I don't like this, but I like that. You know, you need to trial, you know, you need to just try something. I, I think another thing is you need to listen to a trusted Christian friend and let them give you feedback. The other thing that I would tell you is we've designed, as Mitch mentioned, you know, a series of workshops called Be the Church. And the one on March 3rd is about discovering your unique giftedness. You need to take it. It's on Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, right in the house. And you'll, you really will start getting your mind and heart around this. So you need to sign up for that. That's a great way to begin if you, if you, if you haven't done this. And then, and then here's the last one. So I'm saved to serve, I'm gifted to serve. And then lastly, I find true significance in serving. I find true significance in serving. You know, I was reading in the gospels about James and John, they were apostles, they were brothers. And... Um, I think their mom was kind of a helicopter uh, parent. It seems like she has those tendencies uh, because she's with them and they, and they go up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you know, when you come into your kingdom, would you let my son sit on your right and on your left? You know, it's just kind of a big ask there. That's kind of big. But uh, so she's swinging for the fences. And uh, I, think, I think what you see is that she's yearning for significance. And we see this in, in our parenting, don't we? that you know, we find some of our significance based on kind of what our kids do and their achievement and you know, their accomplishment. And we, we kind of define ourselves that way. And it's interesting because she, she's making this request for significance. And you know, we don't need to really get on her back too much because we do the same thing. We're the exact same way. We have a desire for significance. 
And what it needs is it just needs to be directed in the appropriate way. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And so what Jesus says to her, is, he says, you don't even know what you're asking. And he looks at James and John and says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink of? And they're like, oh yeah, sign us up. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into. They had no idea. And so many times we're that self-reliant, aren't we? That We're that arrogant. We think, oh, I can do it. You know what Jesus said? You will drink the cup. But then he said this, he said, you wanna know the path to significance? You wanna know the path to greatness? The way you find greatness is through serving others. Don't let the world fool you. Don't let the enemy fool you. Don't let your flesh fool you. That's not significance. Serving and giving your time and your treasure and your talent for the encouragement and the building up of the body of Christ, that's true significance. And when you serve in that way, other people may never see you, but trust me, God sees you and he will reward you. That's the promise of scripture. And so my question is this, are you ministering? Are you serving in the body of Christ? If you're not, it could very well be, we're not equipping you. That could be, so you need to let us know. But it also could be, I just don't wanna be equipped. And I wanna tell you, that's not an option left over for you. One last thing, and then I'm done. You go back to verse seven, and he says, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. What was the measure of Christ's gift? Everything. He gave you grace on top of the gift. That's a measure of that gift. That is a big gift right there. And that's why we serve. So I wanna challenge you church to take a step. And all of God's people said, amen.